Father, how clear uh, your truth, how wonderful it is to be able to gather with these with these men this morning. And um, Lord, once again, last night uh, I had a hard time sleeping. I went to bed with anticipation uh, to gather with uh, with these with these guys this morning. Um, I enjoy it. Uh, I, I was uh, I was looking over your word and. And um, just what you have in store for us today, and uh, if I could have, if I could have had Grace and Granite at 9 p.m., 10 p.m. last night, I, I would have. And uh, so, what? What a gift! What a gift it is to gather with brothers. What a gift it is to be able to look at your Word. What a gift it is to be able to pray. And Father, in our prayer, we declare uh, our uh, our need. We are we are not self sufficient. We are, we are weak and frail. Um, we are proud. We are, um, we are over and over reminded in the Bible that uh, that we're not what we think we are, and so we acknowledge what your word says. We're dependent upon you, so we cry out to you today, and um, we ask that you would you would give us uh, a Christ in your word. We, we do not know you through mystical experiences. We come to know you through looking into the mirror of your truth, to see seeing you in in the text of Scripture. And so, we we knew that this morning, um, Lord, you know exactly what you have marked out for this day for us. You know what we need, and maybe even in this hour, you'll you'll give. Uh, You'll give aid. You'll give a nugget of truth. You'll give something that that will be a, uh, an anchor. Uh, will be a help for these men today, for me today. I, I pray that you would do that. Um, I pray that you would help me to be helpful to them, um, to be clear, uh, bring to their minds the uh, the truth. Uh, even times that we share, may iron sharpen iron. And may you set a watch before our mouths. May you guard us. May you guard our hearts. May you keep us from despondency and discouragement and doubt. May there not be an evil heart of unbelief amongst us, Father. May you grant us faith even as we uh, we gather today. We, we commit it all to you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tomorrow is what? Don't you say Halloween. Reformation day. It's Reformation Day. That's exactly right. It is. It is the the day that little kids dress up and uh, practice becoming little Democrats. Right? <laughs> they say they go around mass candy from everybody else. They don't. They don't ask. They huh? snort. They don't ask. Trick or treat. Give it to me, or else. Right? That's the way it goes. Reformation Day. October 31st, 1517. Our video this morning is uh, in honor of Martin Luther and Reformation Day, but it's a really good segue into uh, into our teaching. October 31st, 1517, there was a, a Catholic priest named Martin Luther who had been observing um, some issues to say the least, in uh, in the Catholic Church. Um, on Thursday at uh, 2.30, is that what time class starts on Thursday night? At 2.30 in this room, uh, I teach church history, historical theology um, to the seminary through the system. And uh, 
we just started the Reformation. So this Thursday, uh, the men are going to hear uh, this in great detail because we're actually going to look at, at Luther. Luther did not intend to start a Reformation. Um, in fact, he believed that uh, uh, he was, um, was going to help the Pope. He did not believe that the Pope believed the things that he wrote in these 95 statements they don't have a, uh, a internet. They they don't have a, a Reddit. They don't have any place to post uh, something. And so what you did back then was uh, you posted something that you wanted to discuss uh, amongst the theological minds of the eggheads. You actually took that, you wrote it on a piece of paper, and you nailed it to a public bulletin board, which happened to be the door in. Uh, in Wittenberg, in, a, in the castle there. And so Luther doesn't intend to start the Reformation. Only the, the, uh, the educated could read. And so in Latin, there is this, uh, uh, this disputation. There are 95 statements that Luther wants to discuss, and other people would come and read it. And after they read it, then they would, you know, they, they would discuss it. And it was primarily aimed at abuses that Luther saw within the, within the, the system. Uh, abuses considered uh, related to penance. So if you sin, you go confess it to uh, the priest or the, you know, the little guy in like the, the McDonald's drive-thru box and, uh, and you tell him all of your sins and then he tells you what to do. You know, it's not enough to confess. You don't confess in Catholic system. You don't confess directly to God. You need somebody to stand between you and God, which is the priest. And all that comes from paganism. And I don't have time to go into Constantine this morning, but it's very tempting to launch into that area. <laughs> so you go to the priest and you tell him your sins, and then he tells you uh, what to do in light of that. Uh, you confess, and then you show that you are uh, sincere. The way you show your sincerity is through penance. You say 20 Hail Marys... You give this much money, you know. You um, you beat yourself with a whip ten times, whatever it might be. And Luther saw great abuses in that. Um, the other thing was indulgences, and so for a for a coin, um, you could have your sins forgiven. You could remove. Uh, years off of purgatory. You could help get grandma out of purgatory. So in the Catholic system, purgatory is this intermediate state between death and heaven. If you die in grace, if you die in right within the, within the Catholic system, in the Catholic Church, the church is the funnel. Okay, That's the only access you have to the grace of God, is in the Catholic Church. That's why you today viewed by the Catholic Church as, as damned heretics. That's what we're called. Uh, Council, uh, um, no, it wasn't Council of Trent. Um, Vatican II uh, called you, changed the wording, that you are separated brethren, but you still go to hell um, if you're outside of the Catholic system. Because the only grace is inside the Catholic Church. So the grace is poured in the church, and then through the funnel, there are the seven sacraments, and those are the spouts of grace, and you have to get under those spouts, if you will, and the priest is the one who can turn on the spigot or turn off the spigot. And so, you go through that process, and you might think of it like progressive justification, just to where we believe upon Christ, faith alone saves us in the finished work of Christ, and, and His merits are imputed to us, even though we're unrighteous. His sin 
our sin is imputed to Him and His righteousness is imputed to us. And we stand declared clean and righteous before the Lord because of what Christ has, has done. Rather than that view, uh, you believe upon Christ and then you, you start becoming righteous. So it's the work of Christ plus your merit and then you, you grow in righteousness. Um, but obviously you don't ever get righteous enough to go to heaven. Only a few people do that, like the saints, Mother Teresa or the Pope or whoever. And so you go to this place called purgatory to purge off the rest of your sins. And then if you do that, then you can go to heaven. But obviously you don't know, and nobody really knows, how many sins you have, so you don't know how long you have to be there. So you may be there a million years, you may be there 500 years, you, you may be there 100, 100 years. But the saints on the earth, people that are still alive, can actually give money and can pay in order to draw down from the treasury of merits in heaven uh, and credit those merits to your account. So the idea is there are certain people that, that do really good. You know, obviously the saints and otherwise. So they go straight to heaven. They don't have to go to, to purgatory. And some of them that are really, really good even have more merits than they need to go to heaven. And their extra merits are stored in this treasure chest in heaven. The Pope has the key to the treasure chest, the, the, the treasury of merits. And so that's what the Pope draws from and attaches to an indulgence. So you give the money, the Pope takes Mother Teresa's extra righteousness and attaches that to your indulgence, your piece of paper, or Grandma's piece of paper that you would pay for, and then that springs her out of purgatory, or you, or your sin of adultery, or whatever it, it, it might be. And Luther said, that's a horrible system. Mm -hmm. And it is a horrible system. It's a dark system. It's a demonic system. It's not the gospel. And so Luther writes 95 statements saying the Pope must not know of the abuses that are, that, that are happening. Uh, when you see St. Peter's Basilica, when you see that beautiful thing in Italy, in Rome, Italy today, the vast majority of that was built on the sale of indulgences, the abuse of the poor and going in and scaring people to death uh, with this concept. So Luther writes that, and um, the Pope doesn't pay any attention to it to begin with. In fact, when the word finally gets to the Pope, he says he's just a drunk German monk that will sober up soon. Um, but there's this thing that was invented uh, about 100 or so years before uh, called the printing press. Um, and so people took Luther's 95 statements and then they printed it, and then they distributed it, and the next thing you know, the Pope has a firestorm on his hand, uh, on his hands. And so, um, Luther is uh, is is finally called after about uh, three four years. He's called to what's called the Diet of Worms, um, which is like an official gathering to give an account. And Charles V who was the newly elected emperor of, of Germany, wanting to keep the peace, actually actually calls this, calls this meeting. Um, prior to that, when the Pope finally gets word, figures out that Luther is serious, Luther figures out that the Pope is in on the whole thing, um, the Pope finally issues an edict, uh, which was an excommunication, an ex-surge domini, arise, O Lord. It was a papal bull. A papal bullock? which said, basically told Luther, if you don't recant, then you're going to be excommunicated. You're going to be damned. You're going to be kicked out of the church, which was a lot bigger deal today because there's a merging of church and state. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you declared a heretic. And if you're declared a heretic, then anybody can arrest you and put you to death and actually gain favor with the church. So it's not just we're going to kick you out of Temple Lake or church discipline or otherwise, where there's the spiritual component, which is obviously extremely serious. There's also the the political and uh, a police component you know, to it, if you will. So what does Luther do with this papal bulla, which is this official document from the church? Um, Luther takes it into the middle of the square and he burns it publicly along with a copy of the canon law and says, this is what I think about the Pope's um, bulla. And he says, by writing this excommunication, not against me, but against the truth of the gospel, um, the Pope has... has Himself declared uh, declared himself to be the Antichrist sitting on the throne in Rome. Now that's a pretty good way to start a fight, isn't it? <laughs> and so this catches fire, and Charles V, the emperor, has a problem on his hands. He's a new emperor. He doesn't want to fall out with Rome. There are still plenty of other Catholics in Germany. So he calls the Diet of Worms, which is this, this opportunity for Luther to be tried and Luther to give to give an account. Um, now you say, yeah, it wouldn't be fun to stand in front of people, you know, and, and with, with a bunch of, uh, of folks and and uh, and be rejected. Well, it was a whole lot more than that. I mean, this is uh, the the entire weight of the Roman system, and this is the entire weight, both ecclesiastical and also political, the entire weight of the of Germany. And a hundred years before, uh, a man named uh, uh, John Huss um, was promised that he would get safe passage if he would come and and give an account for what he was saying. Um, and once he gave an account that was contrary to Catholicism, they said, well, any deals that we make with heretics are off, and they burned him at the stake. And so Luther has been summonsed by the emperor to give an account for his writings, and he's going to have to stand against Catholicism and all of the power there. The Pope sends his primary debater, and what is at stake is whether Luther's going to live or die from a from a human standpoint. And everyone's there, and everyone is is watching. And what I'm going to show you right now is a rendition of the moment whenever Martin Luther gives an account um, for for his works and his writings. And I want you to think about um, the boldness, the courage uh, that it took to to do this. Right. This is from the movie called Luther. And I would highly recommend it to you if you haven't, if you haven't seen it. Ratings. I am. Do you recant 
what you have written here. I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First of those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truth. He is not here to make speeches, only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the popes, past and present. No! Through the laws of the Pope and the doctrines of men, the consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I return these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess that I have written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, rite, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not. Recant. Here I stand.
We need more men like Martin Luther, don't we? We need more men whose conscience, who will bind their conscience by the Word of God. More men who will stand. More men who will not equivocate. Um, I think it's really hard for us to grasp uh, the pressure that there was in in that moment. And yet Luther says, um, here I stand. I can do no other. Um, because he couldn't violate the Scriptures. He obviously couldn't violate His Word. So how do you become one of those men? That's why we're meeting. That's why I'm meeting. So I want you to open to page 11 in your book. And we are going to uh, talk about raw materials this morning. The purpose of the series that we're going through is to drive home some foundational convictions um, that give you courage to both apply and uh, and also to stand on the truth. And also to build a stronger commitment to the bride of Christ. So hopefully you got the email last week. If you did not get the email, that means we don't have your email address. So I typically follow up usually Wednesday or Thursday um, either with a homework assignment or something to uh, that I'm working through. And um, if, you, if you didn't get that, make sure you give your email today uh, to Clay before you leave. And we'll make sure that uh, that you get it this week. Um, but uh, last week the assignment was to look up these passages of Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, 1 Corinthians 12.14-27, Galatians 6.1, and, and on. So hopefully you, uh, you did that. It will <coughs> help prepare you whenever we, uh, we come together. It's been said that the topic this morning is raw materials. What do you look for? I mean, this this is the kind of man that we that we want to create. And I don't mean a Lutheran, and I don't mean even somebody that like Luther. Luther was a product of his time, and he had all kinds of of, of issues. Um, Luther needed to complete the Reformation, so there were things that he left uh, that that was kind of a hangover from Catholicism. But at least he got the gospel. Right, faith alone, and the five solas of the of the Reformation that we talked about on Sunday. It's hanging on the wall in the library uh, in there. Um, so it's, I'm not talking about recreating Martin Luther himself, but I'm talking about men that are so convinced that the Bible is the word of the living God that they would give anything for it. They would give their their very lives because it is the word of Christ. Um, and, and, and there's no other place to go. It's exactly what, what Peter said to, to the troubling question that the Lord placed upon his conscience. When, and Peter answers, Lord, where else are we going to go? There's no place else to go. I mean, where, where are you going to turn whenever it gets hard, whenever it gets difficult? There's no place else to turn other than Christ. There's no place else to turn other than, you, other than the Word. Um, and you'll try all kinds of things. The people in the world with it, they'll try whether it be some self-help or you know some other softer, kinder, gentler form of evangelicalism, which in a lot of cases is not 
true evangelicalism, it's not even the gospel or psychiatry or whatever it might be. And you may trail along that for a while, but you'll find that it ends all in the same place, in the pit, in the ditch. And then if you're a true believer, you'll end up back to the Word of God because it's, 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 the, sound, it's the fountain. It's the, the, the sufficiency of, of Scripture is there. It was, it was given to us. And so those men aren't created overnight. Um, I don't know how long you've been saved. I don't know how long you've been pursuing the Lord. Um, but however long it's been, whether it's been 40 years or whether it's been 4 months or 4 years, um, you're, you're, not, you're not there yet. You haven't arrived. And it's a process. And it takes time. And everybody's on the same journey. But it's a journey. And there's labor and there's effort. So what do you look for whenever, you're, whenever you... Uh, are starting out. What should be some of the markers? What should be some of the what? What raw materials does the Lord take in your life and then turn into into granite um, by His grace? What do you look for in other people? If you're going to pour your lives into other people, you should. What What should you be looking for? I mean, you can you can put a lot of effort into into people. Um, that have no desire whatsoever to grow. And, and, and you may need to evangelize those people. But I think I shared with you the story before whenever I was a youth pastor about pouring the majority of my time into the popular people, into the people in the youth group that, that, that had no desire for Christ or for the Word. But, but they were coming and they were the popular ones and if they came, then other people would come. And, and I, I neglected the ones who were truly hungry. And and when I realized that, I repented, and I, I told the Lord, uh, you know, we had a new motto uh, in, the, in, in the youth ministry. We're going to feed the hungry and water the thirsty. The ones who were hungry and the, one who, the ones who were thirsty, that's what I'm going to pour 80% of my time in. The people that the Lord was working in, the ones probably who were saved, honestly. Because if you're saved, you want to know the Bible. You love the sincere, you desire the sincere milk of the of the word. And then 20% of my time trying to evangelize them and for all the others in. I didn't totally neglect them. But I just turned the you know turned the system on its end. Who should you pour your time into? What 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 are the raw materials that that should be in your life that you should fan the flames of, the, the, the sparks that, that are there? Well it's been said that what we're looking for for potential leaders in the church is you find people who are available and devoted to Christ and teachable. Humble and teachable is what we say. But I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 2.2 because Paul simplifies it. 2 Timothy 2.2 Those who are available, those who are devoted to Christ, those who are teachable. But Paul simplifies it here in 2 Timothy 2.2. Obviously, this is a passage where Paul is instructing Timothy to train future elders. Elders train elders. Churches plant churches. But this also can be used as a discipleship verse. Look at verse 2. Paul says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So this is not Paul's little system or 
his own deal. This is observed, uh, public, affirmed, orthodox truth. It's in the presence of many witnesses. Paul taught that to Timothy. Timothy, He's to entrust that body of doctrine, that truth, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what should you look for? There's two words there. Faithful and able. Faithful and able. That's who you pour your lives into. Men who are faithful and men who are able. This is the majority of your effort. And the rest of the time you're spending sowing the gospel in somebody's life. So they can develop marks of faithfulness. And so they can develop the ability you know, that's there that comes through comes through salvation. So if you want to just simplify what should your life be marked by, it should be faithfulness and and then the ability, the skill to transfer that faithfulness to, to somebody to somebody else. Um, so we're going to talk about what what does it mean to be faithful and with these raw materials. So look if you would at page eleven because there are some basic premises before we before we see these these qualities, this raw material in in someone's life. The first thing we see here is uh, no one is is irreplaceable. These are kind of like the um, the introduction, the preface before we we ever get into the book. Nobody is no one is is irreplaceable. The quicker you get over yourself, the faster God can use you. Okay. Um, you you, you uh, I see so much in, uh, in in training for ministry it comes from pulpits that that really is nothing more than than cotton candy for the flesh. It's 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 just more fuel for for the fire. It's all about you. How big a church do you want? Um, what is your big idea for God? Uh, um, what are you going to do? Go be a world changer. Change the world. You don't change the world. Jesus changed the world. You're, you're a bond slave. You're a servant of Christ. And if you do that faithfully, then, then God will change the world and He'll use you. But that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And you're not Jesus. So just be a bond slave. Be faithful. Success is faithfulness. Get over yourself. And then God will use you. Um, the more self is it that's in you, the less God will be able to use you. Because He actually resists the proud. And He gives grace to, to the who? Humble. To the humble. I mean, that's So some basic premises. No one is irreplaceable. As much as I would like to think that um, the work that's going to be done at Timberlake Baptist Church for the next 30 years, you know, Brian Farrell is going to have some part of uh, I, I remind myself on a regular basis that if I leave here today and get hit by a, uh, by a semi-truck, the church will keep right on turning. Uh, you men will be fine because God is the one who's promised to complete the good work in you. Um, and that's true. So no one's irreplaceable. Secondly, people don't always see their own potential. So we're talking about raw material. This may be you. You might not see the potential that God has in your life. So the quicker that you submit yourself to elders or someone over you, the faster your gifting can be identified. Um, People don't always see their own potential. You may not see your own potential. 
you may think that you have a lot more potential than you really do. Um, so you need to listen to number one. But some of you may be in here and you go, how could God use somebody like me? Um, and that is the attitude that you should have. So the quicker that you submit yourself to elders or somebody else who's farther along in the faith, the quicker they can identify the potential that God has in your life. Remember, they're identifying it. You know, you're, you're not identifying it. I have people that come to the church um, that want to join, and they'll a lot of times set up a meeting with me, and the purpose of the meeting is to tell me what wonderful kind of church member that Timberlake's going to get and all of their skills and all their gifts, and they, they specifically want to know... If I come to Timberlake, will I have this ministry opportunity? I am I, I am really good in prophecy. I had a guy come to me tell me that, you know, he has been teaching on prophecy for forty years, and if I would give him an opportunity to teach here, then that would surely be a benefit to the church. And it was almost like, you know, and if you do that, then I'll join. And, and I told him, you know, we don't have any opportunity for that. What you need to do is come and be faithful and. Then, if you know, once you're, you're you're known by the body, if that's identified by the elders, then then we'll give you an opportunity. Um, and he he really didn't like that, and he, he didn't stay. And I said, that's great, that's good. You know, somebody else could greatly benefit from your gift of prophecy, but but we won't. Um, and then there are other men that don't see that God could use them in an amazing an amazing way. And so you, you have to identify that potential and you have to help them to see that that's potential. Well, what do you do with the potential? Leadership qualities surface with leadership opportunities. The quicker you get under some weight, the faster that will develop. Now, whenever I was in college, I, I, was, I, I was laying in bed last night. About 11 o'clock, I don't remember what it was. And I, I rolled over and, and I went like this to scratch my arm and I had this thought, man, my arms are a lot smaller after I hit 40, 48. <laughs> you know, I'm losing muscle mass. And then I remembered when I used to work out in college and do all those other things. And then, you know, I had delusions. That's what I need to do. I need to get back to lifting weights again. <laughs> you know, and I think, yeah, that's great. I'll have a double hernia and it'll be laid up for the next six months. I'm over 40. I can't do this anymore. But... How do you develop muscle? You don't lay in bed and, and dream about it or think about it. There's actually resistance. And the muscle's torn down. And in that resistance, in the, in the pressure, in the stress, then, then the, the fibers actually build back stronger than they were there before. And um, the quicker you get under some weight, the faster those leadership qualities will develop. They surface with leadership opportunities. Um, my grandfather got a battlefield promotion in World War II after many men died. He became the platoon leader in um, the Battle of the Bulge, pressing, pressing through France. He was wounded outside of Trier in, in that battle. Um, and he's a, he's a body shop foreman in Braxton County, West Virginia. I mean, you took a guy. He'd never been out of Braxton County in his life, and he's trumpsing across the, you know, the wine and the cheese fields in in France, where Jeff hails from. And and, and how did he do that? How was he able to to, to lead those guys? He didn't have training. He had basic training, but he was thrust into that situation. Sometimes 
You need to put yourself forward, and you can be thrust into situations, and that's where leadership qualities can can develop. It's also where you'll learn where you have some deficiencies, right? And that's not a bad thing. You learn what you need to work on. Maturity and skill are developed through experience. So the quicker you get busy, the faster that you'll mature. I tell guys that are trained in this room that, yes, you need to learn exegetical process. You need to learn hermeneutics. You need to learn how to go from text to sermon. Okay, But you can learn how to develop a wonderful sermon and still not be able to preach it. And you learn to preach by preaching. You learn the art of homiletics, of communication, of standing before people by doing it over and over and over and over. And the more you do it, the better that you get at it. Now, if you have nothing in the till and nothing to say, then I don't care how well you can deliver it. There are people all over the world that can turn a phrase and deliver a speech. But you have they have nothing for you if it's not rooted in the text of Scripture. So you have to know how to, to arrive, what is the meaning of the text. But once you know that, then you should improve in, in skill of being able to, to communicate that. And maturity and skill are developed through experience. <coughs> so you need to get busy in the faster you mature. And then, finally, the, the, the best in people emerges when they know they're being counted upon. The more responsibility you take, the more, the more you can handle the natural tendency is whenever it gets hard to back off, especially in the millennial generation. I need to take a break. Um, I need to, to take a rest. Uh, and, there, uh, uh, you know, you can be dumb. I'm dumb on a regular basis. And you don't Sabbath properly. And the Lord will spank you for that. And you'll get strung out. And, and then you'll, you'll be drawn back to the Lord. But, but the tendency is you deserve a break today, right? You work for the weekend. You work for retirement. And, and the harder it gets, um, the longer you stay under that pressure, the more pressure that you can then bear the next time. And we're back to where we started with the resistance you know, training. So the more responsibility that you take, the more that you can handle. You want a, a greater ability to handle responsibility? Take some responsibility. Take a deadline. Take something that's that you're counted on. And if you don't do it, then it's not going to happen. You know what that will make you do? You'll say, Lord, if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. You'll cry out to the Lord. And that will that'll help you. So look for the following qualities in men. We're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for raw materials. Even in raw form, they will be there. So... You want to be used, then cultivate these. You don't want to be used, then then I say repent. But if you do want to be used, then cultivate cultivate these things. If you stand back and look at your life, or you stand back and look at somebody else's life that you want to disciple, look for these these little little areas jutting up out of the forest, mountain peaks. Um. Number one, reliability and faithfulness in little tasks or little things. Um, somebody turn to Luke 16.10. Luke 16.10, and whenever you get there, um, read it for me. Luke 16.10. 
One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Can read it one more time. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. What's that saying? What's the principle behind that? <coughs> yeah. Uh, I'd say that we're consistent beings, that it's not about our circumstances, how we act in, in a smaller area or a big area. It's more about who we are than the circumstances. That's right. That's, that's what character is. It, 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 it's what you are, it's what you do, regardless of the circumstances. Um, you tell the Lord, man, if, if, if I made more money, then I would give more faithfully. Is that true? No. You, got, you make $10, then you learn how to give, then you'll do the same if you make $100,000 or whatever the number is. You're faithful and little, then you will be faithful. And much it's a principle. And the opposite is, is true. It's a character. And so you're looking for that. Um, how do you determine whether someone can, you know, can can uh, shepherd multiple people? How do you how do you know whether they should be in a position of leadership in the church? Um, you look for how they live their everyday life. Are they faithful in other areas? Are they faithful in in other areas that they'll be faithful in in these. Areas? Are they serving? Do you naturally see them serving in the body? Do they serve the least of these? If they will, then then they probably will make a good deacon. But they're not going to make a good deacon by just giving them the title if they're unfaithful, if they're not servants in in other areas. And so that's what you look for. And that's what you should look for in in your own life. Um, Sometimes you need to be be tested. That's what sanctification is. The reliable and faithful person takes small responsibilities and turns them into effective progress. That's what sanctification is. That's what growth is. That's what discipleship is. Small truths turned into effective progress. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. One foot in front of the other. The reliable and faithful person takes those small responsibilities and turns them into effective progress. I mean, if you think, why does God, uh, why doesn't God see my potential, and why is my place of service so so small? Then you need to go back to number one: no one is irreplaceable. The quicker you get over yourself, the faster the Lord will use you. But if you're faithful in small things, then then the Lord can use you wherever He chooses. Now you say, well, what about if? All I ever get is small things. Then we're back to the lesson we learned earlier. The master is the one that determines where you work in the field. And you should just be very thankful that you're in the field. Um, because you can still be hoeing in the field of sin and headed for hell. But we get an opportunity to serve Christ. And I'll happily serve Christ by plucking rocks or whatever. I don't have to pick the ears. Um, I don't. I, I'll, I'll do whatever. I'll I'll, uh, I'll clean the the master's feet. I'll clean the other slave's feet. It doesn't matter. Um, Sometimes you need it needs to be tested, and those small opportunities are the ways that you're tested. 
Think about this. If the Lord gave you a greater responsibility than you already had, you may devastate yourself, and worse, you may devastate other people. And that would bring greater judgment. So it's actually grace that the Lord gives. You uncover, you uncover laziness, limitations, or lack of self-control in these small areas. And testing identifies how much supervision is necessary. Everyone needs some level of, of supervision. The small areas determine how, how much you need. Number two, we're looking for raw material, not perfection. What is the raw material that the Lord can take and form into clay? Accept responsibility. A person who accepts responsibilities for failures and mistakes. It's often been said, where uh, whenever God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. And I'm very thankful for that, aren't you? They're, they accept responsibility for failures. Are you somebody who accepts responsibility for failures? I'll date myself as I did from the pulpit not long ago uh, when I was growing up. There was this TV show called Happy Days. Everybody remember Happy Days? <laughs> and the Fonz, he couldn't say a word. Do you remember the word that he couldn't say? Sorry. Wrong. He was wrong. He could say he's wrong. He, he, is that what happens in your heart? You accept responsibility for failures or mistakes? <laughs> Um, what does that look like? Excuse making, blame shifting. A person who will not own things, proud. I found some examples of blame shifting. What does this look like? You ever heard this? Um, I'm sorry I got angry at you, but you just made me mad. You ever said that? Is that a true statement? That's a lie. Somebody makes you mad choose to be mad. Choose to respond in a sinful way. That's blame shifting. Not taking responsibility for your action. But it feels a whole lot better, doesn't it? Because you just put the responsibility on somebody else. How about this one? I'm not normally... Uh, I'm normally a patient person with this traffic. You know, that person driving down the road, they weren't here. You know, I'm normally a patient person. What are you doing? Shifting the blame to somebody else. How about this one? I would I wouldn't struggle so much with purity if there wasn't so much immorality around me. If there weren't so much visual scenes on billboards or in the tabloids or otherwise. Now, does increased temptation increase temptation? Yeah. But does that mean that you're not responsible for your own heart and the choices that you make? No. You are responsible. If I had more money, I wouldn't be anxious. I wouldn't be so anxious. If I had a better wife, I'd be a more loving husband. Here's my favorite. I would grow a lot more if my pastor preached differently or my small group wasn't so boring. Or how about this one? Our church would grow if everybody was more evangelistic when they hadn't shared the gospel with anyone for the last five years. It's not my fault that the people around me are so stupid. <laughs> blame shifting do you take ownership the natural inclination of your flesh is to excuse or to run and hide well that's a proud person 
you need to develop the ability to own things. Somebody look up Proverbs 28.13 and read it. Proverbs 28.13 You should accept responsibility because failure works to your advantage. Proverbs 28.13 If you don't know this verse, you have memorized this verse, I strongly encourage that be your your homework this week. Proverbs 28.13 Who has it? Alright. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who conceals his transgressions. He who conceals. Who's doing the concealing? The person committing the transgressions. But if you confess and forsake, you'll find mercy from the Lord. Um... Why do we conceal? Why do we why do we pretend that we're something that we're not? Proud. We're proud. We don't want people to know what we really are. But God knows what we really are. And the only way that God can change you from who you are into Christ is by confessing and forsaking, and you'll find mercy from the Lord. You ever confessed? You ever been you ever done something? That uh, that you need, you had to go back to somebody else and confess to them, and you didn't want to do that, and you wondered, man, I mean, you argued with the Lord, Lord, if I tell them this, I, I'm, I mean, what are they going to think of me? And then you went and you you did that, you confessed it, and the opinion that the other person had of you actually went up, not down. You ever been that experience? Have you ever had to do that? You mean somebody give me an example, if you want to, of where you went to somebody and you had to confess something that you really didn't want to confess to them, and you were worried of what they would think, and then it turned out turned out good. You make a story like that. Well, I told you mine, right? When I first came to Timberlake on Wednesday night, I had a church memory. He's not here anymore. He was a pretty hardcore kind of guy. Um, pretty judgmental kind of guy and um, his wife gave me something to eat right before service and um, I don't eat before I preach and it was a big sausage ball thing with uh, um, like uh, um, the Pillsbury dough crescent roll thing around it smelled wonderful I love sausage I love the crescent roll things but I don't want to eat before I preach so I put it in my office and then I took it home and I put it in the refrigerator. I totally forgot about it. I never took a bite of it. Never ate it. So obviously things don't last forever. Don't think a thing of it. Three weeks later, I'm walking down the hall. I come around the hall in Timberlake, you know, like this. Boom, there's the guy. Hey, Pastor, how you doing? How'd you like that sausage ball my wife gave me? Immediately out of my mouth was, oh, Brother, that was great. Thank you so much for providing that. And, and I walked off. He was like, wonderful. I'm so glad you liked it. She'll be blessed by that. Something to that effect. And I immediately walked off and the Holy Spirit smacked me. You just lied to that man. No, I didn't intend to lie. In, in the sense of premeditated, but I lied nonetheless. I'm accountable for my words. And now I'm thinking, and I'm the new pastor here. I heard go back to tell this guy that I lied to him. The pastor lied. Come on. What kind of knothead is the pastor? You know? 
I fretted over that. And I just submitted to the Lord. I called him on the phone. And I just said, Brother, I need to tell you something. I just told him a story, exactly what happened. In full honesty and truth. And then I waited for what he was going to say. Oh, Pastor, that's no big deal. You know, it's, it, uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to, you know, you, you obeyed the Lord, but think nothing of it, appreciate it, hung up the phone, and went on. That's what I need to do for my soul. I've had people confess things to me like that. And you know what happens when they do that, when they humble themselves? My opinion of them doesn't go down. It goes up. Why? Because they have the same heart. <laughs> I'm capable of the same thing. But they just model for me what I'm supposed to do whenever I do that same thing that's in, that's in my heart. Um, and that's the mercy of the Lord. So confess and, and forsake. All right? Number three, the team player. He doesn't see himself as the answer to every issue. You are not God's gift to the church. Um, and even if you are an evangelist or a pastor and teacher, which is God's gift, Christ's gift to the church, you should not think of yourself as God's gift to the church. Are you a team player? 1 Corinthians 3, 5-19. You know that passage? Paul says, I plant Apollos watered but who's ultimately responsible for whatever happens? God, God gives the increase. Paul didn't say, I planted, I watered, I built up. Have, have you ever been around people like that? I've sat under some ministries like that. Where you walk away from the pulpit and everything. If you are the hero in every illustration that you give, you got an issue. If every single time that you get in the pulpit or that you're talking, it ultimately comes back to you and it's about you or what you have done, then you got a problem. Paul said, I plan to polish water, God gives the increase. You understand that you are purposely gifted. You, everyone in here has a spiritual gift. Everyone in here, as we talked about on Sunday night, when we did our, our new member covenant service, is, is needed. And if you're not using the gift that God has given you, you're not cultivating these things so God can use that gift. If you're not being faithful in small things so the Lord can use you in a greater way, you are you're squandering that. And 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 you're you're neglecting what God has given you. And you're harming the church. You need to be used. You need to be faithful and you need to be available. Um but did you know that God's also purposely limited you? He's purposely gifted you and He's purposely limited you. He's purposely gifted you so you'd be needed. And He's purposely limited you so you would need other people. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. Some of the hand, some of the foot, some of the eye. And the whole body needs every part. The body needs every part to, to function together. Um, but the eye's not everything. The mouth's not everything. The foot's not everything. And God's purposely limited you um, so you would you would need others. Are you comfortable around gifted and talented people? This is one of the ways that you can tell whether you're a team player or not. 
Are you comfortable around other gifted people? Do you like to be around people that pull you up? Or do you like to be around people? Do you primarily surround yourself around people that you're elevated over? Um, Are you able to praise the giftedness of others? It's one of the ways that you can tell whether you are a, a team player or not. Um, number four we're looking for raw materials faithful and reliability accept responsibilities team player patient with the idiosyncrasies of others can you work through difficult personality clashes <laughs> Can you tolerate the inadequacies of others? Now, the more gifted you are, the harder this can be. So God may need to give you a thorn in the flesh like the Apostle Paul to keep you from exalting yourself. It is a good thing that you're purposely limited. Because if you had all of the gifts, you know what your heart would do? You'd exalt yourself, you'd isolate yourself, and you'd be a church of one, and then you really wouldn't be a church. I can remember a guy who came to Timberlake, and when I met him, immediately you could tell, I mean, this guy, he had it. I mean, he was an undergrad over at Liberty. I mean, he just had charisma and a natural ability to turn a phrase. I mean, he didn't have to learn homiletics. I mean, you just give him a platform and he could have everybody eating out of the palm of his hand you know, in a moment. He was smart. I mean, he could tell you whatever in church history. I mean, he's an undergrad. I mean, massively gifted guy. And one of the first things I told him, the first meetings we had, was um, you need to be careful. And uh, I said, because you're, you're really gifted. And that's, that's not to your benefit. Things come naturally to you. So you need to cultivate humility twice as much as, as anybody else would. Um, and everybody that was around him propped him up. Everybody that was around him at Liberty or wherever else, they put him in positions because here's the guy, and I mean, he's like, you know, he's like Ovaltine. You just add water to him, and he's got all the energy in the world. I mean, he, this guy was great. Immediately put him into positions. <coughs> And um, he's not walking in ministry or otherwise today. And I would argue it's probably because he didn't develop these qualities that we're talking about here. Um, The harder, uh, the more gifted you are, the harder it is for you to be able to put up with the, the weaknesses of others. If you are noticing the weaknesses in others all the time and not noticing your own weaknesses, you need to make an appointment with one of the elders or Mark or somebody else and say, I need to work on pride. Would you counsel me or disciple me you know, in that? And so the Lord may give you a thorn in the flesh. And you need to thank the Lord for that. Because He wants to use that giftedness. But that giftedness without something that will humble you will blow you up and, and everybody else you know, in the process. So can you tolerate the inadequacies of others? 
your strength, whatever it is, a lot of times that's your spiritual gift, usually is the greatest source of irritation, your greatest source of irritation with others. Whatever you're good at is what you'll see other people like, and that's what will get on your nerves. Isn't that the way that it works in marriage? I mean, the world says opposites attract. The Bible says that God brings two people together to complement. And what your wife is good at, that's what she sees and typically points out in your life. You don't have this, and you know, and that's usually where the fights are, right? And, and and what you're good at, let's say she's the administrator, and you're and you're uh, mercy or whatever. She doesn't understand why you just can't set it up and knock it down. Why you can't keep a to-do list? Why is it hard? Why do you forget things? And you're sitting there going. I mean, is it really about the list? Isn't it about the people? You know, isn't it about showing mercy? Whatever you're good at, it is what you'll see in other people that they like, and that's that will be a test. Um, can you give people time to develop? Jesus waited patiently for the disciples to develop. Are you a patient discipler, or do you write people off? Think about how many times Jesus had to teach the disciples the same lesson over and over and over. Now tomorrow at 9.30 in this room, um, we have Seminary Chapel. I'm preaching. All of you are invited. I know many of you have to go to work. But 9.30 tomorrow morning in this room, we'll be in here, we'll be connected to the system, and I'll be preaching chapel for TS. And the message will have to do with one of these times when the disciples had to learn the same lesson again and Jesus was extremely patient with them. He's very patient with me. Is he patient with you? <laughs> Are you patient then with others? Number five, know your uh, know your own limitations. Recognize your own weaknesses. Do you surround yourself with people who are not like you so they can they can shore up your weaknesses? With patience, do you allow others uh, to succeed or fail so that they might learn or grow? Number six, able to graciously accept criticism. Doesn't carry personal baggage. Uh, Matthew 18 we won't turn there for sake of time. But that's the passage where Peter comes to Jesus and says, If my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? You know. Three times, seven times, seven Jesus says seven times seventy. Are you able to graciously accept criticism? Um obviously as a pastor, as somebody who Shepherds lots of people. There's plenty of opportunities to get praise. Um, and so, if that would feed my pride, if the Lord wouldn't keep me humble, then that would be a danger to my soul. And on the flip side, there's also plenty of opportunity to receive criticism. You have a church of 500 people. People aren't. Most people are not naturally critical. I mean, there might be a handful of people that, you know, that 
drink pickle juice on a regular basis. <laughs> but most people aren't critical, hypercritical. But if every person gives one criticism a year, that's 500 criticisms that you get. And you need to be able to know how to deal with that. You need to be able to know how to deal with it by your wife, your kids, your home, your work, wherever it is, or you're not going to go very far and you're not going to be used to the Lord. You're definitely not going to be able to disciple other people. Are you able to graciously accept <coughs> criticism? Now, not all criticism is accurate. So that requires maturity. Maturity, a mature, spiritually mature person is able to take criticism graciously and then sift through. Yeah, that, that was from the Lord. I need to own that. No, that, that wasn't from the Lord. And if in doubt, I'm going to go to somebody else and say, hey, this criticism came to me. Do you, do you think it's accurate? Do you see this in my life? And then I own whatever that is. So a mature person is allowed to can take the criticism and see what's accurate and then throw off the rest and not let it bother them. And not not even did that be in their mind the next time they see that person. I remember what you told, what you said to me three months ago. Um, are you able to graciously accept criticism? You don't. You, you want people that don't carry personal baggage. Baggage is a nice word for bitterness. And most people need to grow to release personal baggage. It is no fun whenever somebody points out a weakness in you. It's it's not fun whenever they poke you in the in the spiritual eye. But sometimes you need poked in the in the eye. Sometimes you need poked in both eyes. Sometimes you need your eyes blacked, right? I do. Sometimes you need God to punch you in the mouth with the truth. And sometimes you need God to apply some balm. And the Lord knows exactly what you need. And He uses people. Don't reject it because it's the wrong person or the wrong time. Um, a mature person is able to take the criticism regardless of the source and regardless of when the criticism comes. Deep down, there should be a softness and a gentleness. Galatians 6.1 You are to restore a person in the spirit of meekness, gentleness, considering yourself. Most people need to grow, release personal baggage, especially, this is especially true of leaders or would-be leaders. Number seven, self-focused. I'm sorry, solution-focused rather than problem-focused. Um, you focus on solutions or on problems. It can be the difference between an energy giver and an energy taker. It's the evidence of somebody who uses good judgment. Bad decisions can be avoided with teachability. Solution-focused rather than problem-focused. Experience is an effective teacher, but it's also a painful one. Just ask Adam. Ask Adam. He learned by experience, but it was a painful lesson, wasn't it? Taking counsel is much wiser. That's what Proverbs 19 is about, taking counsel. You're able to assess challenges and find solutions. You're not a whiner. You're not a complainer. These are raw materials. You say, well, I don't know all that theology and stuff. You see any of these in your life? If you don't, these are things that you ought to become cultivated. Number eight, enthusiastic, optimistic. Number nine, 
enjoy serving people. Mark 10, 44. I'll be preaching that tomorrow. Greatness in the kingdom. Someone who has a servant's heart. And then number 10, individuals trusted by close friends. You're looking for raw material. <coughs> now why do we end with trusted by close friends? Because those that know you the best um, are a guide to those that know you little. Um, why do you think in First Timothy 3 there's a qualification for those who are identified by the church's elders that they're they're lovers of their wives, they're one they're a one woman man and they're they're able to shepherd their own household. It has to do with that. Why do you think in Expositor Seminary, whenever the men apply, we also ask for a testimony from their wives and for the wife to give her opinion of whether he's ready to be trained for ministry? She knows him better. <coughs> right. The people that know you the best can be a guide to those who know you you know, little. Um, you are who you are whenever you're alone before God. God knows you the way no one else does. But then second to the Lord, it's your family, your wife. You have one. If you don't, you're close friends. Your children. And then you're the brothers that are around you in the church, whatever you know, sphere of influence. Um, and so when you're looking and you're doing self-evaluation, go to those people. So what do you see in my life? I, I want to be a man of, of, of grace and granite. I want to grow. I want more responsibility. I want to be used of the Lord. And in order to do that, I, I, need, to, I need to know where my weaknesses are. Um, go to those people. Humble yourself. You say, man, I don't want to go ask my wife that. She let me have it because that's what I've been doing to her. <laughs> <laughs> but help yourself hear it write it down then evaluate it. is this true or is this not true if you don't know come to somebody else that knows you say you know I, I, I humbled myself I asked these questions these are the five things that somebody said about me do you see these things in my life is this accurate or, or are they just taking the opportunity and then what you hear is a consistent pattern um Deal with it. Acknowledge it. Because if you hear consistency, you know, you've heard the old statement that if everybody's got a problem with Bob, maybe Bob's the problem. So if everybody's saying the same thing about you, you may have a massive blind spot in your life. And the Lord may need to remove that. But why would He remove that? Not to be mean, but so He can actually use you. He needs to get that out of your life. Because he's gracious and he's kind, and he'll take you as you are, but he won't leave you that way. Um, you do come just as I am, but you don't stay just as you were. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen. Isn't that great? I'm so thankful for the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the challenge. Amen. Like uh, Luther, who is captive to the Word of God, our consciences are so 
inextricably bound to the truth that we would be willing to stand against all of the forces of of hell and in that case the church and politics and otherwise help us to be men that way that didn't happen overnight Lord no tree starts as an acorn so help us to do some genuine evaluation of when we see these things in our lives and where we lack help us to to reach out to another brother someone else to identify because Lord we we want to be used time is short and uh, we do want to be faithful men and able men um, so that we might be able to teach others also. And we just thank you for this day. Bless these men as they go about this day. Bless me, Father, as I attempt to serve you. May you bear fruit and may it remain in all of our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.